0: Okay, good morning everyone, and good morning to everyone online. Um, I'm loving this series, In His Presence. Are you enjoying it? I think um, as we're pursuing the presence of God, we're really sensing Him in our meetings and in our lives to a greater degree, so that's really brilliant. Well, this morning, in his presence, the next part of the series, so of course, we're back at that time of year of the Six Nations, and I can remember when um, Christy came to stay with us, and Julian took me and Christy to our first Six Nations game, and here we are in Cardiff, and uh, Christy joined in everything she noticed around her. So she noticed everybody in the Wales supporters seemed to be carrying around a plastic pint of beer, so she wanted one too, and then proceeded to spill it all over the steps, which was also quite in keeping with everybody else, and so immediately everyone around her just loved her, and every time we scored, we, uh, you know, Wales scored a try, Um, the guy next to her just kept hugging her and she goes, this Welsh hospitality is lovely, isn't it? And me and Julian like, oh, I don't know. So, but the thing, my favourite part of it has got to be the fireworks. Here's a little video of the fireworks now. Oh, I love that. I love that bit. Of course, the rugby is the main thing, not the fireworks, yes. But the thing that, that I wasn't prepared for was the kind of national anthem. Now, not the true Welsh national anthem, but the informal Welsh national anthem, Why, 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 Delilah. And to hear all those fans in the stadium singing that together was quite an experience. So I looked it up on YouTube, and you can see that one time uh, Tom Jones comes on and sings a more... Um, 21st century relevant version (laughs) um, at the beginning of a game. And so today, I want you to kind of imagine as we go into this talk, why, why, why Delilah is kind of our soundtrack to this story because she brings things to a rather sticky end. And so, of course, today we're looking at the life of Samson in our present series. Now, at the time of Samson, when he was a judge over Israel, Israel had suffered for 40 years under the Philistines. And the Philistines, historically, were a notoriously brutal. Um, oppressor of people, and the things that they did were really evil. And Israel had been suffering all this time, and this was a dark period of Israel's history, where they turned from God, they were far from Him, they were not living in a good place. And also, we've got to put this in context, really, that this is like a, a barbaric time when tribes were fighting for survival. And so sometimes when we talk about the battles, I was thinking this morning, Zoe you know, led worship so beautifully. When we singing those songs about battles. Today, we're looking at a few battles, but we have battles in our own lives, and the overcoming strength of God is there to help us through be with us through those battles. And so in this like context of like darkness, far from God, it's barbaric, God raises this new leader, Samson, and he's dedicated from birth. And in some ways, he embodies, his life embodies the power and presence of God as we look at his life. Now he had a miraculous and dramatic start. An angel of the Lord came to Manoah's wife who couldn't conceive, told her she was going to have a child. They make a sacrifice. The angel goes up in the flames. They realize they've seen God, we're gonna die, but they don't, and they give birth to this little baby and call him Samson. So in Judges 13, it says, The angel says, You will become pregnant and have a son, whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. This is a little bit like Gideon coming to Mary, isn't it, and telling her Jesus' destiny. And so this couple have this, you know, not only are they are going to have a child, but this child has a huge destiny. And the angel goes on to unpack what being a Nazarite involves. Now then, the angel warns uh, the the wife, drink no wine or other fermented drink and do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. And the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. Now, I love this little bit. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. So our first point, number one, is this, Nazarite. Now, this meant Samson was totally committed to this journey, and he was. He grew up knowing from his parents this was his destiny. This is who I am, this is my commitment, I am a Nazarite, I I belong to God, I am his servant, I will serve him all my life as the deliverer of Israel. And we see all the way through Samson's ministry, he walks with this sense of destiny and commitment, never wavers from it, that commitment to be the deliverer. But there are certain requirements that go with it as a Nazarite. No strong drink, never cut his hair, no unclean foods. And there's all kinds of other little detail about touching dead bodies and things like that. And so he's set apart as Israel's deliverer, and it all looks very promising. Number two, over the line. Now, you know, sometimes when uh, there's police tape-up or any kind of tape-up warning you not to go somewhere because it might be dangerous for you. Uh, God had many... um rules and regulations for his people that kept them safe and kept them functioning with one another and also showed that they belonged to him and they were devoted to him. It's a little bit like in our Christian life. If we say that we're a Christian, we've turned, we've repented from the things we've done wrong in our life. We have turned to say, Jesus, I want to live with you. And that's a whole new lifestyle. So Samson here is a Nazarite. He starts to overstep the line. Now, it starts in the little things, honey and the lion, Philistine girls. So let's look at what it was exactly he was up to, in case you've never heard the story before. So in Judges 14, it says this, Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him, The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, so he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father or his mother. They're either like lagging way behind or they're ahead of him of what he had done. Then he went down, talked with a woman, and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some too, and they ate it. But he did not tell them he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass." Now, this might all seem absolutely fine. What's the problem with this? But these are the issues. First of all, he wasn't supposed to marry outside of the Hebrew tribe. And this is why it records in um, uh, Judges here, his father and mother, when he says, I want this girl, go and get her for me, they reply, which seems rather timid to me, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? They like don't put their foot down or help him, you know, to remember you are a Nazarite, this is forbidden. But instead they kind of like, you know, and it looks to me like maybe they've been giving in to him for a long time because he's the deliverer. Maybe he's brought up getting his own way. And so they try and like talk him out of it, but he's not having it. A marriage between the Hebrews and the pagans were prohibited and the reason for that to keep their way pure before God so they wouldn't be distracted. I mean in Exodus 34 16, God gives a warning to them that not to let your sons be led astray into idolatry by marrying foreign women. And in Deuteronomy 7 verse 3, there's a very clear instruction. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. And so straight away, Samson is like crossing the line in the little things and he wants his own way. Similarly with the lion issue, with the honey in the lion, the Nazarite laws were all about ceremonial purity and it was about his separateness, devoted to God as a Nazarite. And in Numbers 6.6, it says this, throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. And so Samson, you can see, it's like he's just doing the little things on the side, but taking honey from the carcass of a dead lion violated the laws. And it's interesting how he shared it with his parents as well without even telling them where it came from. They thought it came from the local farm shop, but no, it was out of a dead lion. And we see here Samson picking and choosing what he will obey. Which parts of being a Nazarite will he keep? And really, we see him skimming it down to the most essential part of not cutting his hair. But as for the other things, he starts on a slippery slope of compromise. What we do see, however, is Samson does throw himself energetically into this role of deliverer single-handedly stirring up trouble with the Philistines. He is an unstoppable force, a bit like Ireland yesterday. And he never, ever questions his role, his destiny, what he's called to. He has total faith in God's continued presence with him, giving him astonishing power. So every time he's in a situation, he's living this Nazarite vow. He just expects with great faith that God will just turn up and do it every single time. And he's like a one-man army stirring up the Philistines. So Judges 14, we learn of one of the big, you know, he starts. these things start to get a little bit bigger. This is Samson's first marriage. He goes down to the village, sees a Philistine girl, says to his parents, I want her, and they give in without much of a fuss. But the wedding turns into a nightmare. I mean, nobody wants a wedding like this. Samson poses a riddle, there's prizes involved, and during the seven days of the feast, the Philistines are trying to guess the riddle and they can't. And in the end, they threaten his bride, she will be burnt alive if she doesn't get them the answer. And Judges 14 says this, On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Well, that's a great wedding, isn't it? And so what happens, it says Samson's wife in verse 16. Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing. You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle. Can you see the compromise now? He's marrying a Philistine. They are the enemy. He's already in trouble. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. She cried the whole seven days of the feast. Oh dear, that's a bit of a warning sign, isn't it? So on the seventh day, he finally told her, because she continued to press him, this is a pattern he's getting into. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. So the girl whispers the answer to the Philistines, and inevitably, this all ends up in carnage. Dead bodies, fighting, and Samson walks away with no bride, trail of destruction, fire behind him, full of anger. And God uses this to stir up the Philistines and even the chaos of Samson. What's interesting, Samson is just this maverick stirring things up. And despite his mistakes, God uses it to start this plan to deliver Israel from the Philistines. So we skip now to Judges 15. And this pattern of crossing the line, giving in, will eventually snare Samson because habit becomes a lifestyle. So Samson has now developed this, like, crash-and-burn lifestyle. He's like the person to invite to the party or definitely not invite to the party. And he's continually provoking the Philistines. There's one time where they're trying to catch him, and he tears up the city gates of Gaza and carries them on his shoulders to the top of a mountain just to make a point. You tried to catch me? You can't catch me. This role of the judge in Israel, totally unconventional road. At the wheat harvest, he goes down. And this is like serious because it can cause a famine. He goes down, he burns up the Philistine crops and their olive groves and their vineyards, lots of foxes involved, very, um, you know, smell of burning flesh. Oh, it's all very messy. He is on a roll. And after this, he goes down to eat them, And there he stays in a cave and he's just hanging out, having a bit of a peace and quiet and uh, probably you know one little fox managed to survive keeps some company there in the little cave and meanwhile now the philistines say we have to kill this man we is a one man army I mean, it's interesting that you see all the other judges had like intricate battle plans where they raised the troops and spoke to the tribes and they all did it together in kind of intricate military maneuvers. No, no, not Samson. You never see him rising, you know, raising up teams. He just does it all himself and he's unstoppable. So the Philistines track Samson down to Judah. And the people of Judah say to the Philistines, why have you come to fight us? Because they're being oppressed by them as well. And they say, well, we've come to take Samson prisoner. So they say, well, we better go and find Samson first, hand him over to the Philistines. So it says 3,000 men. Now, they couldn't just send one or two for a little chat with Samson. Safety in numbers. They send 3,000 men to go and have a chat, to go and find him in the cave. 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? Now, we've come to tie you up and hand you over. Can you imagine them saying this? We've come, uh, um, you say it, you say it. um, uh, We've come uh, to tie you up and hand you over. So Samson just says, Swear to me, you won't kill me yourselves. He's going to have a bit of fun with this. Agreed, they answered. We'll only tie you up and hand you over to them. We won't kill you. (laughs) And they're thinking, "Few, we'll all be rid of this mess. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. And it says in verse 14, As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting. They're trying to raise some, you know, ah The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. You can imagine the men of Judah going, oh, (laughs) did you bring the right rope? Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, with the donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys of them all. Now this is because in Hebrew, the word for this sounds like the sound a donkey would make. I won't illustrate, but you can imagine in your mind. And with a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. You can see this guy is unstoppable. One man and a thousand men. And he is living this role of deliverer with the presence of God, the power of God, the power in his vow, and every time he has full confidence. So when all the Philistines approach him and he lets you know, Judah like, you know, bind him up, he has full confidence in God, no fear. This is what we see here. Imagine we had that confidence in God. He walks in this confidence. God is with me, I'm the deliverer, God will turn up, and he has no fear at all, and he goes out and does his job. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone. I love this. It's just like, oh, job done. You know, just throws it away. And um, the place was called Ramah Lehi. And this actually means Jawbone Hill. So that's what the locals called it after that. Now, note Samson's attitude next. I think this is maybe how he was raised. But he goes to say to God, now, because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? (laughs) It's like so disrespectful. But what you do see in here, where he says, You have given your servant this great victory, he knows the victory comes from God. He knows he, he is the servant. You have given your servant. In this Nazarite vow, he is the servant of God. And as the servant, he knows that God performed the victory. God gave him the strength. He is an incredible example of power and presence. But now he's complaining, hey, you know, we've had this great victory, but now I'm dying of thirst. Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. That's like so many times the Bible encourages us to drink of the Holy Spirit, that we may be strong and revived. So the spring was called En-Hakor and is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines, 20 years He led. Now, what's interesting about this 20 years is in the scriptures here, you can go and read his whole story. I encourage you to go and read it. It's only four chapters, it's action packed, Judges 13 to 16. But this is like the highlight reel. It doesn't give everything that happened every day for 20 years. In that whole 20 years, from a young man to an old man, he served God relentlessly in serving and delivering Israel, keeping the Philistines at bay. The Philistines were terrified of him. He was a major nuisance to them. But out of that 20 years, these are just the highlights of what he did, an unstoppable force. And yet, despite this, like heroic destiny and strength. He was also fatally flawed. He was living over the line. A Nazarene plus compromise. And instead of living wholly as a Nazarene, the Nazarene plus compromise means things start to go wrong. And habit becomes a lifestyle. It becomes who you are. If we practice a habit often enough, it's not just a habit it becomes who we are. And this is what led to Samson's downfall. So we skip now to Judges 16, to Delilah. And wouldn't it be great if we could just sing this together? But maybe not. Okay, Judges 16. I'll end with a song. Judges 16, sometime later... He fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Now, this is in the Philistines, so she is a Philistine woman. But isn't it sad that he falls in love now? The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Can you see all the familiar themes here? The bride, the woman, you know, tempting him, getting him to reveal the secret, being tied up. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Now, just to say, in a later chapter in Judges, it shows that 10 shekels were given to a man as a year's wage, 10 shekels. They are offering her... 1100 shekels, each one of them. So this, this is a fortune. This is like you will never need to work again. This is more money that she can spend in a lifetime. And what does she say? I love him, I won't. No, so Delilah says to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. This is the saddest part of this story. He has practiced hanging out with Philistine women. And now he is again with a woman not of his own tribe. And he has fallen in love. And I don't know if he was blind because he'd fallen in love. Or just whether he didn't care. But all the while, while he loves this woman, she is seeking to betray him for money. Seeking to betray him for silver. Just like Jesus. Jesus was betrayed by Judas for silver by one he loved. So Delilah nags and nags Samson for his secret. And we all know how powerful that can be. The Bible says it's better to live in an attic or or a a dripping tap than with a woman who nags. (laughs) Judges 16 Uh, he, he says on one of these occasions to Delilah, "'If anyone ties me securely with new ropes "'that have never been used, "'I'll become as weak as any other man.' "'So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. "'Then with men hidden in the room, "'she called him, "'Samson, the Philistines are upon you.' But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. And this continues where, with his amazing strength, he just realized that God will be there every time. And three full attempts. You think he would realize, don't you? There are men hiding in the room. You know, Delilah's trying to prize the secret out of him. He, he makes up fake reasons, fresh bowstrings, you know, plait my uh, braids, and all this type of thing. And finally, fed up. That she hasn't had the truth, Delilah goes in for the kill. Judges 16 verse 15. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. And with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, Come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so began to subdue him, and as he slept, his strength left him. Then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved." This is a very sobering part of the story. Our fallen hero. And Samson is wearied by Delilah's demands because he has given into this pattern over and over again in his life. It has been so easy to slide across that line and so he loses it all. And this is like, do you remember Esau carelessly gave away his inheritance to his brother Jacob over a bowl of stew because he was hungry. In Hebrews 12, 16, it says, see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Can you see how easily these precious things were just given away and abandoned? And we need to be aware of living by our appetites also. There are things that we might want to, I want to, but they're not good for us or they're not right or it's across the line. And we need to make wise decisions in our life with God's help long before the crossroads of choice. You know, if there's a time in our lives when we come to like a crossroads of decision or temptation, that decision has to be made way before we reach that crossroads. When we make a decision in our hearts that I have turned from my old life to follow Jesus and now with his strength, I will live that life. And as Samson slid out of his vow, because he'd practiced compromise so much, he was really good at it. And for us, living out our Christian life fully is living out our faith in daily life. It's not like praying a prayer, having a ticket to heaven, and then living any old how, like Samson, just doing the minor, get me through. But actually, to make that decision that we're going to follow Jesus with all our heart, with a repentant heart, knowing who God is, Now, when sin and temptation comes our way, as it does for each and every one of us, we need to decide way before that point of decision. Don't leave it to the moment of temptation, but long before we're standing at those crossroads. Let's choose a life that we will live it in faith. We can see here Samson was living out by faith, but compromising so tragically. But for us, we can have God's power to live before him. So for example, faithfulness in our relationships, in our friendships, in our family, if you're married, in your marriage, or brave celibacy in our singleness. Now what about sexual temptations? I remember many years ago, Julian and I going to a church where we were just young, serving in ministry. And a lot of the older couples had this habit of like, flirting with each other, like it wasn't, it wasn't an issue. And we drove home from that, and we're like, when we get older, let us never do that. And it turns out that that habit of flirting with each other, many marriages crashed and burned in um, adultery. And it's like, if you practice that long enough, it becomes who you are. And it's not a modest or pure or right way to live. What about following God's way and not sleeping together outside of marriage? The Bible is clear that sex belongs in marriage. And if we are having sex, outside of marriage. God—that That is not God's way. It's not what God asks of us. And how does it start? It starts with just staying over, sharing a room, then sharing a flat. But it's not too late to change. I remember many years ago when we were leading in Spring Terrace, a young couple became Christians. They just radically gave their life to Jesus. And they'd been living together for some years. And the guy came to see Julian. He said, I just, you know, I've been reading the Bible and I just realized this isn't right. I want to tell you, pastor, I'm moving into the spare room and we're going to get married as soon as possible. And within weeks, as fast as they could do it, they got married and they brought a change. It's never too late to bring that change, to bring our life in line with our faith and living before God not over the line like Samson. There is a reason there is a do not cross the line tape in areas of our lives, because God knows how life functions best to keep you safe and to keep your heart pure. And what about other sins we struggle with? We all struggle with these things, attitudes of the heart. Gossip, division, anger, revenge, unforgiveness, all those dark emotions that can creep into our heart. You know, if we nurse bitter thoughts long enough, we become a bitter person. If we practice little behind-the-scenes gossip, we become a gossip. If we lie out of habit, we become a liar. None of us want to be these things. Let us decide with God's help that we are going to walk faithfully before Him, that we will not be that person. Let us choose, I will live in the light. I will keep my speech pure and my heart pure. I will exercise forgiveness when I want to hold on to a grudge. I will exercise restraint when I just want to do what I want. Modesty, love, compassion, I will be the faithful friend. So crossing the line, let us be aware a habit becomes a lifestyle. The little compromises that we make in life can become who we are. And if we're devoted followers of Jesus, let's do it with all our heart because disaster lies ahead when we ignore God's ways and God's plan for us. Now the psalmist writes this. It's one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. Do you want to live on the path of life? It is God who makes that known to us. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Are we looking for joy? We will find it. In his presence, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's take on board what the psalmist is saying to us here, what he is singing, the advice to us. Are you looking for joy, the path of life, and pleasures forevermore? They're found walking with God in his presence. And God helps us with these things, which we'll see next. So, number three is power and presence. Now, we've seen in many ways how Samson embodies power and presence. He is living it, but then he's compromising. Remember that time when he just like rips up the gates of Gaza and carries them on on his shoulders? It is effortless. But the saddest moment in Samson's story has to be Judges 1620 where it says, he did not know the Lord had left him. He's captured, he's a slave. They've taken out his eyes and he's in prison grinding grain like an ox. But the story doesn't end there. There is more. I love this. Samson gets brought into the palace for entertainment. The Philistines just want to gloat over capturing their worst enemy for 20 years, Israel's leader. But while he's been in prison, Samson's hair has grown back. And in his blindness, a young guy leads him to the pillars of the roof where all the key Philistines are in this party. Now, it's interesting that in the 70s, they found some Philistine temples in a certain place. Can I remember what it is? In the, a place called Telkasil on the Yarkon River. And they found temples like the one described here in Gaza. And they found one among the ruins of this temple were found two circular stone pillars that had had huge cedar pillars on these pedestals about a yard apart. And that was like a typical Philistine temple. It's interesting, isn't it? that They found one. So here's Samson. And they lead him. And about a yard apart, he's got his hands on the pillars. And all the important kings, nobles, uh, officers, everybody, the key players are in this room, hundreds of them. And as he feels the pillars under his hands, he says, one last time, Lord, just one last time. His prayer is, Sovereign Lord, look at this, you know, the humility. Sovereign Lord, he knows who he is. Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. He knows where the strength comes from. It comes from God. He says, remember me. And in that moment of asking God's help, God's presence and power returns. And he pulls down the pillars and the whole place collapses and everybody dies. (laughs) Like I said, (laughs) barbaric times. (laughs) But in one move, in his death, Samson defeated more of the enemy than he had in the entire 20 years. It's a heroic end, but a very sad one. And he literally brings the house down and wipes out the Philistines. It's interesting that later on in 1 Samuel 17, peace is recorded, and no doubt... Samson's contribution to this in wiping out all the key players probably initiated the end of the Philistines. In 1 Samuel 7 it says, so the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. And throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. And so it wasn't just a momentary, uh, you know, a, a great success in the moment, but it went on for generations. There was a legacy to this man's life. God's power and presence. And so as we kind of wrap up, how does this apply to us? The secret of Samson's astonishing power was his Nazarite vow. A man relentlessly walking in his destiny. He never departed from that. But he was flawed. He was living out his call every day with power, never turned away from a battle, never ran away on a ship uh, like Jonah, um, never asked for multiple confirmations like Gideon. But here he is, relentlessly for 20 years. And it says the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. So he's living in this incredible power, and yet flawed and making massive mistakes along the way that bring him eventually down. Now for us, the Holy Spirit, God has given us the Holy Spirit to be in us and walk with us every single day so that we can have his power and his presence every day. Every single day as we live our Christian life, the Holy Spirit prompts us like Adam's uh, the, the indicators at the beginning, whether we should go to the left, whether we should go to the right the Holy Spirit prompts us in our walk he helps us he helps us overcome temptation he inspires us to do good and kindness and serve the poor and those in poverty. He gives us gifts of wisdom, discernment, prophecy you know we can live out a spiritual life. We were never meant to live the Christian life life like it's a set of rules and we're trying desperately to live by them but Jesus is in us by the power of the Holy Spirit Jesus said, um, so when we are born again, we are born of the Spirit. Do you remember when Jesus said, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and born of the Spirit. There is an entry point. We're born of water. That's our physical birth. but Then we're born of the Spirit. Have you made that step? Have you ever said, gosh, I knew there was a God, but I didn't realize there's a whole like relationship and power of the Holy Spirit. And we come to Jesus and say, forgive me for all the sin, all the things I've done wrong in my life and being far from you. Forgive me and Jesus rushes in to forgive us. And you say I'm going to turn from that. It's called repentance in the Bible. I turn from that to follow Jesus and give me, Lord, the Holy Spirit. And there is a baptism in the Holy Spirit. So we're born of the Spirit. But there's also a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now Paul, remember after Jesus um, Died, ascended to heaven, he sent us the Holy Spirit to be with us. Paul finds some believers in Ephesus. They've never heard of the Holy Spirit. Acts 19, 1 to 2. Paul arrives in Ephesus, he found some disciples and asks them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? And they say, We've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul places his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There are about 12 men in all. And I want to encourage you who've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is part of our package. This is what God wants for us. When we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, we live out of the power of the Holy Spirit and overcoming life. And so we can live, not like Samson in the bad sense, but Samson lived this just knew his calling and that when he came to do something, God's power would be there. And we know there's also, you know, special occasions when God's power comes in. I remember a time when um, I'd been invited to go and speak in this conference in Stafford. And just the day before, Julian had, you know, when Julian went through that period of cancer and Julian had his, um, the operation and we sat in that little room in the hospital And they said, well, you know, it's the secondary, can't find the primary. This is going to do the radiotherapy. They start talking about three years, five years, all this. Well, I got on a train the next day. And I'm like, gosh, Lord, I, I, you know, I can't pull out of this conference. I was the only speaker. Otherwise, I'd be tempted to ring up and say, can you manage without me? So in the conference, I did the first session. There's a coffee break, the second session. I'm speaking in the second session. They asked me to speak on love. But in my heart, I was like, this is not going to happen again. I've lost most of my close family to cancer. I'm not going to lose, lose June. This can't happen. And I was like praying to the Lord. Lord, deliver him. Lord, deliver him. Pray him. And I was just reading my notes about God's love. But inside, I was like, Arr! and then when that session finished, I'd been asked to ask everyone who wanted prayer, you know, for God's love to come over this side. And I did that because we're going to break for lunch. But inside, I just suddenly said, And anyone who wants healing, come over here and I will pray for you. And then the meeting ended and I walked over and I was like, what the heck have I done? I've got no team, it's just me, I'm weak. What was I I thinking? So I came over and there's there's a queue of about a dozen people. And one after another every single person got healed with one prayer. The first lady I prayed for was like early 60s and uh, she had had um, ringing in her ears for years and years and years and years. and And she said, she said to me, when you were preaching, I know it was on love, but inside I felt stirred. This can't happen anymore. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. So I just put my hands on her ears. I said, in the name of Jesus, be healed. She burst into tears. I thought maybe I pressed her ears too hard. And I was like, what is it? What is it? She got all the ringings gone. She's had it all gone. Then I noticed she had a bandage on her knee. So I put my hands around her knee. She, uh, I won't go to see her too long. Prayed for her knee because it was all puffed up. Her knee went normal. She went to sit down. The next girl, just a young girl, been in a car accident, nine months of injections for the pain, uh, very, very tall, there was something wrong with like, her arm and something in her back, prayed for her arm, one prayer, all the pain went, she could move her arm. Uh, she turned around and prayed for her back, healed like that straight away. Her friend burst into tears, because she was going over helping her friend get dressed every day. Having broken my hand in March, I know what that's like, um, having to get someone else dress you every day until you can recover. But one by one, as it went down, in the end, they were bringing everyone back, and we had to go out to the foyer. Went out to the foyer, and a little queue came, and I thought, oh, this is a bit like um, Jesus in the Bible, when all the village kept, I, I bet everyone was like, quick, run and get your gran, get your son, get your baby, quick. So people were starting to hear, and one by one, every single person, I remember one lady, uh, her feet were like this, but one was like that, because she'd run up into the bedroom, and her husband left his clothes there, and she the spike of his buckle belt had gone in her foot, It had all become infected, and even though the injury was over, it left her with one foot like that. I bet that husband (laughs) was the very tidy man after that. So she couldn't even wear shoes. She was wearing slippers, and and with one prayer, as we all watched, her and her friends, her foot went normal. Now, this went through every single person until there was no one left to pray for, No one left. And the last lady I prayed for was 80 years of age. Faithful lady. Love the Lord. She said to me, I've never asked somebody to pray for me all my life. Because I felt that would be selfish. Oh, don't ever do that so she had had a stroke she'd recovered but her feet and uh, legs were numb apart from occasional uh, pins and needles so the meeting had started back now and I was being disruptive in my own conference so we sat in the front row uh, while they were doing something else waiting for me to finish the the last talk and I prayed for her and she told me after it's like like God's rain came all the way down through her body she could feel it like water and all the way out of her feet and all the feeling came back Amazing, isn't it? So sometimes there are those moments, like with Samson, where it says, the power of God came down and did something amazing. But you know the amazing thing about Stafford? That wasn't just in a conference, that's happening every day. As we pray for a friend at work in the supermarket, uh, the the, uh, lady outside of Tesco, all these, you know, we're praying for people in the everyday. It's not just in the special occasions, but we are living out of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit every single day. Now, when Samson discovered the Lord had left him, was it the Lord that left him or was it Samson who left? It was Samson really who left. He walked away and broke his vow. And yet look how when he called on God again, how God rushed in to meet him. He didn't go, well, I don't know after what you've been doing, Samson, but God rushes straight in with power. And what does this mean for us? Last week we looked at Psalm 139. His presence is with us and you cannot flee it. Jesus in Matthew 28 Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. When we come to Jesus, he's quick to forgive our sins. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We have that confidence. And Psalm 103 says he's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And the only way we can be removed from God's presence is if we decided to go into some kind of direct rebellion in knowing who he is, but choosing to walk away. And that would be a terrible place to be. And let us be mindful For God is not like an old pet or an old coat we get bored with. Somebody said to me recently, I'm not doing God just now. And I felt you are in a dangerous place. God is not to be mocked. He is our loving father, but he is the awesome creator God. So don't worry that in our sin, we will lose his presence, although it might dull our sensitivity to his presence. But as we come to him and confess our sins, he will forgive us. But it is only in direct rebellion that we could walk that dangerous and terrible path. So be assured of the loving presence of God with you. And that when we sin, we come to him, we ask for forgiveness. But don't let these things become a habit that it becomes who we are. So as we close, Samson's story is both an inspiration and a warning. It's a warning to us. The habit of crossing the line can grow into a lifestyle, but it's never too late to turn to change with God's help. And that was Samson's undoing. But on the other side, Samson is an inspiration. What astonishing power to defeat the enemy and how God can use us even with our flaws. We don't have to be perfect for God to use us because none of us are. We just need to be repentant, ask his forgiveness, and walk in his power. So be encouraged that God can use you and use me despite our weaknesses, despite our flaws. He's not waiting for us to get better before he uses us. Look at Samson's example. He was used in an astonishing way, even with his mistakes. He accepted his call without question. He never turned from the enemy, and he had an unquestioned faith in God at all times. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. It is our faith, our faith in him, living out of that faith, and being true to our faith. And lastly, Samson is recorded in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame. And there in the Hall of Fame, you know that part in Hebrews 11, it mentions all these heroic, amazing characters, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Rahab. It goes to say all these, and then it adds this in verse 32. The writer to the Hebrews says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time. Next slide, please. I do not have time to... Oh, no, sorry. Forget that. I scrubbed the slide. Um, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. And this is Samson's legacy. There he is with all his flaws, embodying the power and the presence of God every single day in the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11 a man of presence and power. So as we continue in this series, let's look to Psalm 105, verse 4. Seek the Lord and his strength and seek his presence continually. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these amazing stories recorded in the Bible for us to learn from. I thank you, Lord. I ask, Lord, that you'll come to us now by the power of your Spirit. And I feel in in our own hearts, this this is a moment to take a stand and to say, yes, I want that. I want to follow you, Lord, with my whole heart. And if that's you, I ask you to stand now and we'll pray together. If you say, yes, Lord, today, I want to follow you with my whole heart. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came to us and you died on the cross to forgive us all our sins. I thank you that we stand here, Lord, forgiven. As we come to you, ask for your forgiveness. As we confess our sins to you, you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we stand before you, Lord, saying, I give you my whole heart. I want to walk all my days in your power and your presence. I ask, Lord, for an infilling of your Holy Spirit now in every person. Fill us again, Lord with the power of your Holy Spirit, to live this life with your help. Let's just pray our own prayer now out loud. Let's just praise the Lord. Like Samson, here I am, remember me, Lord. Give me your strength again. Let's pray, pray to him personally. Lord Jesus, as we devote ourselves to you again, I ask that you'll give us your strength every day to live for you, that you'll help us, Lord, as we navigate this life, that we know your presence in us. We ask, Lord, that you continue to uh, heal the sick through us as we meet and encounter people. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to walk an overcoming life. And most of all, Lord, we say we love you. You are amazing. You are the faithful God. You didn't turn your face from Samson, but you came right back with your power. And I thank you that you are with us every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay.